Greetings members old and new, and welcome back to the Possibility Department, your one-stop shop for the modern-day occultist. If you find yourself entertaining the possibilities of anything and everything when it comes to the great unknown, then this is the place for you. My name is Luciana and I'll be your host as we dive into what I like to call spiritual and psychological templates for living our lives, interpreting our lives, and creating change in our lives. Take what you like, toss what you don't, and remember that what we talk about on this podcast is just as far-fetched as the concept of any higher power. Alright, let's talk about some weird sh- Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Possibility Department Podcast. Boy, do I have an interview for you. <laughs> I really enjoyed this one. I mean, really, really enjoyed this one thoroughly, and I'm so excited for you to listen to it. But as always, before we go any further, I have to thank my sponsor-level patrons. These are the patrons on level three who are over-supporting me on Patreon and getting access to the entire meditation library, as well as the monthly roundtables, meetups, and or workshops that we're doing. This month, we're actually tomorrow at the time of recording this, we're doing a roundtable on how we found witchcraft in the occult. So I think that's going to be really fun. Usually we do workshops, but sometimes we'll do a roundtable. So thank you so much to Jenna, Hannah, Sydney, Sandra, Brianna, Jewel, Amy, Mariella, Erica, Brittany, Ingrid, Karen, Tara, Joanne, Noel, Sarah, and Luna. Thank you so much for supporting the Possibility Department in its efforts to become bigger, badder, and better, as I always say. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Firelight, who is the host of Inciting a Riot, a very long-running pagan podcast. You'll hear us talk about that. That's all going to be linked below, so you can go listen to his podcast. And he recently has written a book called The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft, which you can pre-order. It will be available in September. And boy, oh boy, this... (laughs) This is my new favorite book. If you like what we talk about here at the Possibility Department, if you like acknowledging the possibilities, but also having a foot in the logical, a foot in the rational, a foot in the grounded, but still being open to the magic of the human experience and what that means and how we can harness that and interpret that, this book is that. This is my new book that I'm going to be recommending (laughs) to anyone who is new and comes into this world. Um, and, and likes the idea of using the tools that are available. Psychology is available. Science is available. Those aren't things that have to be at odds necessarily with your spirituality unless you really want them to. Um, but this book really spoke to me. I, I felt validated when I read it. I feel like this is something that I've specifically been looking for this book for a long time, and I feel like I've I I found it. (laughs) And I was lucky enough to get to read it before it comes out. So I'm super excited about it. I know that if you like my content, you're going to love this interview. You're going to love the book and you'll love Firelight's podcast. So without further ado, it's a long interview, so I'm not going to blabber on any longer. I'll let you get to it. And I hope you enjoy this awesome interview with Firelight. All right. Welcome to the Possibility Department podcast, Firelight. Thank you so much for uh, having me on the show. I love your show, by the way. It's new to me. I, I really love it. You do, uh, you do such a good job with your interviews. 
thank you so much. I, I really, this is kind of like me living out my dream that I've been working on for a long time. And uh, it's, I mean, speaking of dreams, it's definitely surreal to have you here on the podcast because you've interviewed like everyone under the sun in the pagan and witchcraft community. You have like, I would say the longest running pagan podcast. Would that be accurate? One of the longest running? It is certainly one of the longest running. Definitely. I'm trying to think in my head about some of the folks. Uh, uh, Corey's show, New World Witchery, I think came on a couple months after mine. But I want to say Chris Orpello's show. I know he's still going. Um, I think he came out a few months before me. I'm trying to think some of the people that had sort of been long running when we all started around like 2009, 2010. I'm trying to think if they're still going, but yeah, certainly, certainly one of the longest running. Yeah. At this point. <laughs> right. And so you've had kind of like your fingers on the pulse of the pagan and witchcraft community for a long time. I would say you kind of made a face there, but I would say, <laughs> so, um, I mean, and you've introduced people to the community that aren't necessarily, you know, pagan or spiritual or witches. So, you know, what has that been like, that progression of seeing the community morph and change? Yeah, I, well, thank you. I I wish that I felt like I had my finger on the pulse of what witchcraft was for the last like 12 years, but I, um, I certainly got to witness the evolution of our lived shared experience online for quite a long time. I mean, the community is, is pretty young, uh, you know, it, it coalesced in, in uh, the mid 1900s. So getting to sort of be an active part of that for 12 years has meant being a part of it for a, a pretty significant amount of time yeah. in the pagan community, getting to watch it evolve. Uh, in into the community that it is now. Um, and that's a really cool thing. It's been really cool to see the kinds of conversations that we thought were revolutionary back then versus the kinds of conversations that we're having now that are really advancing thought, uh, the kinds of voices that are getting to um, be much more visible now. Yeah. Uh, when I started, it was this bizarre, crazy thing to have like a gay podcast, you know, a gay pagan person out and talking about being a gay pagan. It's not like I was the only one, but it's just, it was not as common yeah. uh, as, as it is now. Um, and now it's just, it's so really, really amazing to see uh, the wealth of uh, people and backgrounds and uh, lived experience that have pulled chairs up to the table, have made their own tables, you know, are finding new ways to connect and share their experience. And I, I love the direction um, that the community is going. It's great. You were saying something earlier about, you know, introduced new people to the community. And I, it immediately made me think of, um, I used to way, 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 way back uh, in the long, long ago, uh, I wanted to do, because one of my favorite classes that I took in, uh, in undergrad was comparative religious philosophy. I even talked about that in the book a little bit. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to do in the show early on was sort of have a discussion about other religions, just sort of the big broad strokes um, beliefs of other religions. And I mostly use textbooks and stuff, which is a stupid way of doing it. <laughs> retrospect but one of the conversations was I brought on um Ross and Carrie from the podcast Ono oh Ross and Carrie uh, uh sort of as a representation of agnostics who are you know a lot of people sent me a lot of email very angry very confused emails why are you talking to agnostics why are you 
you know, why would you bring atheists on your podcast? And I'm like, well, they're the second largest religious group in the country right, <laughs> by yeah. far. Um, I think talking to them and getting their perspective about their views of spirituality um, is important. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I hold a lot of space for that even in the book as well, because I think that, you know, we still like to think of uh, a pagan um, person or an occultist or a magical person, magical practitioner as sort of trading off Christianity for witchcraft. Absolutely. And, yeah. and using one to sort of fill in the blanks of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, when there's a whole wealth of people that have a spiritual experience that they describe themselves as sort of spiritual, but not religious. And right. you know, my show has been a way of, of uh, sort of bringing out conversations for folks that are like, you know, I, I really appreciate paganism and, and spiritual practice and magic and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm a scientist, I'm a biologist, I'm a medical doctor, I'm a psychologist, I'm a sociologist and yada, yada, yada. And I, I want a perspective that's a little bit more grounded. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's that's a little bit more um uh well I, I guess grounded is is the the word there for me. But uh yeah, so I think that I think that my show is is one that has at least really tried hard to it's not always been successful, but it has tried hard to get people to not just think about what they believe and not just explore the fun parts about magic um, right. and pagan spiritual practice and and scholarship but also maybe had a stop every now and then and say, okay, this is cool that we believe it. Why, why do we believe this? Where did this come from? How did this enter our thought stream? Why have we all accepted this? Right. Have we, have we poked it in a while? Is it time to (laughs) bring out the stick? (laughs) Yeah. Is, you know, when was the last time we poked this? Is it, is it still viable? Has it been sitting in the refrigerator too long? Maybe it's expired. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. So that's, that's, uh, you know, it, when people talk about, you know, bringing people to the table, I'm glad that, that, uh, you know, my show can sort of bring those kind of conversations into, um, into the spotlight as well. It does. And it also honors that people are multifaceted, you know what I mean? Like a, a quote, you know, which isn't necessarily like, you know, a woman living in a cottage on the edge of nowhere with, you know, like there's, there's atheist witches. There are people who aren't don't identify with witchcraft at all, but do like to practice some elements of witchcraft. So I think that's important to also kind of like debunk all of those stereotypes. But I mean, personally, how has your view of like your practice and magic changed over time as you've interviewed all of these incredible people and had all of these different experiences of conversation? Well, you know, and we were talking a little bit uh, before the show started, I started my show really, really young. Um, I had been practicing uh, for several years since I was in high school. Um, and I started in my early, early, early 20s. I was literally still, actually, when I started the podcast, I had just graduated college. But um, so I had a lot of knowledge. Uh, I had a lot of like, knowing stuff in a book. <laughs> Yeah. And, and some experience, you know, but it was a very sheltered experience. I lived a very sheltered, small East Texas town life. Um, and, you know, I thought that because I had a lot of information from a book, I guess that's the better way of saying it. I don't know if knowledge is the right word, but I had a lot of information um, 
which means that I thought that, uh, you know, these ideas were fixed points in, in my practice, fixed parts of spirituality. I thought, you know, I remember early on, I was like, oh, you know, Pikachu isn't real. Santa Claus isn't real, yada, yada, yada. Why are we, you know, why am I seeing people post on blogs about using, you know, transformers on your altar or whatever? And now I'm like, you know, Jean Grey is a really awesome, <laughs> a really awesome like figure to, to have for like rebirth or something. Gosh, I want a tarot card with, with like Jean Grey's temperance or something like, right. Uh, you know, I just, I, I, I think that as my, my practice has gone on, one of the good things about being online and getting to be part of a lot of very messy conversations is that, um, I've, I've realized that one knowledge, especially in a spiritual context is not a fixed thing. Uh, two, that as I learn better, I get the awesome, uh, opportunity to shed old ways that don't work and do better, uh, going forward. But at the same time, I think one of my biggest takeaways, um, from the last, you know, several years is that there aren't really as many rules as, I think we all kind of think that there are um, right, yeah. sometimes I, I, I think that, I think that, uh, you know, we leave one set of rules and we, we say, you know, most of us come here from another religion. Mm-hmm. Um, some of us don't, but most of us come here from some other religion. And when we get here, we do a lot of talking about how, you know, oh gosh, I'm leaving behind a very oppressive, you know, rules-based spiritual pra- path. You know, I don't, I don't want a lot of rules. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. And then we immediately set about filling in all of the blanks with a lot of rules. Yes. Yeah. And a lot Especially of, when you're, a you're doing this wrong. Yes. Yeah. And as soon as you read a, fir- you know, like 10, you read 10 books and you start telling other people what they're doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I 100% raising my hand. I was the first to do that. Was yeah. the first to do that. Cause I was like, I really thought, I mean, I had read all my books. I had, I had done my homework. I had read all the books they tell you that you're supposed to read. And I, I thought I was done. I thought yeah. I knew all the things and there's, it's, it's so much deeper than that. It's yeah. so much deeper than that. And, and so much less restrictive than that. And there might be rules, but if there are rules, they're not the rules that we think that they are. Right. Um, you know, magic is so much more wild and powerful than I think our rules, uh, let it be. And, and I think that maybe if we let go of some of those rules and rigid, rigid ways of thinking, we have a, a, an opportunity to connect a little bit deeper with, um, the world around us, with ourselves, with our fellow man, with our community. Yeah. Well, I mean, on that note of rules and sort of creating your own path and for those who I do have listeners who aren't super into witchcraft so for those who aren't out there reading witchcraft books what we're referring to yeah (laughs) hey hello what we're referring to is a lot of beginner witchcraft books can um lay out a lot of standards and rules for what things necessarily have to look like you know I think you use the example in your book a lot of like rose quartz for love you know like it has Mm -hmm. to be this way um and so what we're talking about here is kind of defining that and finding your own path, which leads us into your book, The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft, which I had the privilege and the pleasure of reading. And what I love so much about this book is that it is, it's a book about magic. It's a magical book, but it's very grounded and there's elements where you apply real critical thinking and real logic and you don't make any false promises as to what magic is going to do in your life. So 
I would love to know what was like the inspiration and the driving passion behind creating this because it, it was needed. We were looking for it. Well, thank you. That's really good to hear. <laughs> you're you're the first interview I've had about the the book, so it's good to it's good that you uh, like it. <laughs> better. Um, yay! Uh, so, um, I when I started. Um, my path, you know, you, you do your reading, you read your Cunninghams, you read your Raven Wolves, you read Uncle Bucky's Big Blue Reader, you know, you, you read all your theory, you read all the little self-published books and you read all the blogs and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, like we were talking about, it, it comes with a lot of rules. It comes with a lot of correspondences. It comes with a lot of very fixed ways of, of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it also seemed to come with a lot of, of, uh, ideas that were accepted as fact right? that I didn't realize at the time weren't facts. <laughs> when I, when I got started, uh, 2009, you know, that little area, uh, that era of the, the late early aughts or whatever, <laughs> the, the little turn of the millennium, yeah. um, people were still like unpacking the fact that the Margaret Murray burning times wasn't real. Yeah. But and coming to terms spent, with that. <laughs> right. But like our big pagan publishers had published quite a lot of books, like a lot of books, like a lot of books talking about the burning times that where 9 million women, women were burned at the stake for practicing like this revived, you know, this like unbroken line of witchcraft, the data, yada, 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 all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All of, all of that, you know, and all of that was, we, I, I, I personally accepted that as, as true because Mm -hmm. all of the books that I had read in the witchcraft section said it and they referenced it and they all referenced each other. And I thought, well, gosh, this must be true. Right. And then come to find out when you start reading other historical works and other breakdowns and, and, and critique, it wasn't true. Not, no, it wasn't true. (laughs) Nine million women weren't killed, you know, and, uh, all, all of that. So it, started me down a path of wanting to go back through my introductory books and give a critical eye to maybe the other information that was in there. Where, where did some of these correspondences come from? Where did some of these associations come from? Why is East associated with air? Why is South with fire? Why is West with water, et cetera, et cetera. You know, where did, uh, you know, why is Rose Quartz for love? Why is Lavender for love? That kind of thing. Where did we get that from? Is there a basis for that? Why does it have to be that? If I do it and it doesn't work, does that mean that I don't, does that mean I'm, I'm bad at this? Does that mean I'm not a real witch? Does that mean that this just, you know, where did all of that come from? So I, I had always toyed in my head for the last few years, at least, um, I had always said, you know, people ask, especially sort of at the height of when my podcast was a little bigger than it is now, uh, people ask, you know, would you ever write a book? And I said, well, if I were to ever write a book, I would write the Un 101 book. Yeah. <laughs> I would take all the chapters that you typically find in a 101 book, and I would want to, you know, there's a lot of pagan content creators out there that say, you know, oh, I support science, I support you know, I support and, you know, uh, find a circle that supports science and, you know, find people that support science. 
I'm like, well, what if we like really lived up to that? What if we like said, okay, well, we're an earth-based spiritual tradition. We revere the natural world as sacred, or at least that's my understanding of it. What if we really truly included natural science into here? And we said that there is no separation between the science and the spirit. And sure, that might mean that a few of the things that we thought were hard and fast rules might need to, you know, get our stick out and poke at them a little bit and see yeah. if maybe they're expired ways of thinking, um, see if they still work, uh, or maybe some things hold up. Maybe there's some, some ways of thinking that we could uh, improve upon if we included science and psychology and, and uh, you know, biology, chemistry, that kind of thing, and really sort of embraced uh, examining the why behind the what. Yeah. So that's what I tried to do in the book is, um, you know, I, I also have a, a background in um, social science. And one of the things that I love about the field of sociology is that it doesn't just examine the person, it examines society, it examines you know, why we are the way that we are because of the world around us and mm -hmm. how we perceive the world and how the world perceives us and how we interact with the world, et cetera. So I tried to build a book out that was very fair-minded, fairly objective. Um, you know, maybe something didn't necessarily, you know, maybe something challenged me <laughs> while I was writing it and researching it. Um, and I, I tried to go about it and say, okay, if somebody is approaching this, you know, the, the second largest uh, religious category in the United States are people who identify as um, agnostic, atheist, you know, basically having no religion. And the majority of those people, um, according to the Pew Research Center, identify as spiritual, but not religious. So they, they want some kind of spiritual path, but they're very critical. They want their spirituality to uh, embrace ongoing conversations of politics and, and, um, social justice and economics and, uh, you know, et cetera, science, you know, yeah. they, they want their, they, if they do go down a spiritual path, they want to have all of these conversations that they are having in their real lives considered inside of their spiritual path. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to write this book, but I'm going to write this book in a way that, um, includes those people and includes those conversations and says, okay, you're coming here. You're a little bit of a skeptic. You are having a lot of conversations where, you know, you want to include science and psychology and sociology and social justice. Okay, great. You know, well then in that space, what is magic? So here's what science might say magic is. Here's what psychology might say magic is. Here's what magical people might say magic is, et cetera, et cetera. And I tried to present each of the ideas in the book in a way that I don't know that I specifically provide any answers. I instead tried, you know, I endeavored to provide the reader um, multiple ways of considering the subject so that they could then go think for themselves and decide for themselves what it was. I'm not here to proselytize. I'm not here to push you into paganism. I'm not here to tell you that this is the one true only way and that, you know, you absolutely should do this. I'm here to say, um, I find value here. Right. I find immense, deep, profound spiritual value here. And I find value here even when I include the science, even when something ne doesn't necessarily hold up under a microscope. I still find spiritual value here. I just don't ignore the science around it.
Right. Right. And this book accomplishes all of those things. It's critical. It's critical magic. It includes science and social justice and appropriation and all of the things that we talk about and we want to include in our magical practice because we're logical people. Um, and this might be kind of a selfish question that maybe I'm just asking for me, but I'm wondering what the research process was like for you and how extensive it was, because I so appreciate that it feels like every point that you make, you, you're you listing a source or a fact or an opposing view or, you know, um, getting an opinion from, you know, Lilith Dorsey or someone who's uh, knowledgeable on whatever you're talking about. So I'm wondering what the research process was like, because it's so, I feel like it's rare to read a book about magic and to get like fact after fact, you know, like that, you know? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I'm glad it reads that way. Uh, so I, I don't, I mean, you know, I, I am surrounded by colleagues that have far more advanced education than I do, uh, you know, talking to Corey over at New World Witchery and the guy has a doctorate in folklore, you know, I, so many other people, you know, Lilith Dorsey is an anthropologist and, and, uh, you know, there are so many people that have um, these amazing enriched lives. I don't have a doctorate. I do have advanced degrees, um, but I, I also know the limits of what I'm an expert in. So I didn't want to just sit there and spout off a bunch of my ideas. Right. Uh, because if you want that, you can listen to my show. <laughs> you can listen <laughs> yeah. to my podcast. You know, you can go follow me on Twitter. Nobody, yeah. need, no, nobody needs that. Nobody needs like a book of Firelight's hot takes. Like nobody needs that. Yeah. Um, instead, what I wanted to do was, you know, examine certain kinds of things from multiple perspectives. Um, and basically, you know, kind of like what you were saying, basically let the experts do the talking like, okay, you know, let's talk about crystals. Let's talk about crystals from a magical perspective. You know, let's go talk to a witch and see what a, a, a crystal witch says to do, right. but let's also talk to a geologist and let's, let's examine the crystal industry and let's, you know, let's look at the practice of using crystals and magic, um, from, multiple angles from angles that maybe we hadn't considered before, um, or maybe angles that we had considered before, but we might not have considered them next to, uh, some other kinds of information. Um, you know, when you take, uh, the, the moral question of, do I need this crystal? And, and, or, you know, when you take the personal question of, do I want this crystal? But then you take the moral question of, at the cost of, you know, a child yeah. <laughs> having dug it out of the ground uh, in a country I will never visit and never yeah. see that treat, you know, that is is guilty of crimes against humanity. Is it worth that cute little crystal that I found for two dollars in a basket somewhere? Right. Um, and maybe we don't think of those kinds of things when we pick the crystal up. Um, so again, it's it's not seeking to provide any definite answers. It's seeking to give you maybe information or ways of viewing information in new ways, perhaps that you hadn't considered before. Right. And in the book, I mean, you do provide all of these tools so that we can define magic for ourselves, but then you do also include like some really beautiful set scenes that kind of just kind of give us an idea of what your, your definition of magic is. Um, so I would love if you could tell our listeners kind of what you think magic is, even if it's just personally. And uh, why did you feel like it was important to include in the book 
what magic can and cannot do. You make a lot of examples with Hollywood and what people are sort of expecting. So, you know, as a writer, why did you feel like that was important off the bat to kind of give people that? Oh, gosh. What is magic is a very difficult question to answer. And I will tell you that I almost completely avoided answering the question in the first draft of the book. (laughs) Really? Yes. Which all of my beta readers called me on and they were like, I get what you're doing and I get why you're doing it. Yeah. But you have to give a definition for magic in your book because we have to do you of all people, Firelight, you, (laughs) you, you would skewer us if we did not define our terms, right? You have to define your terms. And I was like, okay, fine. I will define my terms in the vaguest way possible. (laughs) Mostly. And and I don't know, I don't know if it's, I I think it's maybe um, uh, an overreach on my part to let the reader come to their own definitions and conclusions. Um, I, I'm also a poet and I, I guess when I talk about magic and what it is and how it works, I get very poetic with it. And I think that so much of magic is, um, ways of interacting with the world that help us change our behaviors that help us, you know, do things in new ways, et cetera, et cetera. But the magic part of it just helps weigh the scales just a little bit more in our favor. I I say in the book, I think that for something, for magic to work, um, the thing that you want must be possible. Uh, You know, I said on the blog a million years ago, like, I'm not going to do magic and then grow a tree with purple diamonds. I'm not going to do that. The magic has to be possible. Yeah. Um, You know, I I can't, I can't just thoughts or things my way into whatever I want on, on earth. Okay. So if that's true, then magic must have limitations. Mm-hmm. It can't just do anything. All you and I exist on the same planet as everyone else does with the same laws of physics, the same gravity, the same climate, the same everything as everyone else does. Um, and we are not making it a regular habit of winning the lottery every week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly again, magic has limitations. So I wanted to talk in the book about what magic can and cannot do in my experience. Um, because one, I hadn't seen that in a book before. Me neither. <laughs> it, or, it made me realize once I read it. Yeah. <laughs> not, not often. And I, yeah. I don't want to say it's not been in a book before because I've not read every book. Um, and I might've read a book and it might've been in there and I might've forgotten it because it might've been a long time ago, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, so don't write in. <laughs> It very well could have been discussed before. Um, I'm not the first person to have this thought. But where I normally heard conversations of spell failures, of magic not working, were on podcasts and YouTube and blogs. And when people were just kind of shooting the shit, to use a phrase. Yeah. Um, You know, for some reason, though, when we go to put things down and put things in writing, especially in a book, we don't have those discussions explicitly and expressly. Yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know if those are editorial decisions. I don't know if it's just like, well, people don't pick up a book on magic to hear about how magic doesn't work sometimes. Like, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I guess I could get that logically. I mean, I don't want to go, you know, oh God, I just broke up with my boyfriend and I want to hex him. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to go pick up a book on magic and, and then open it up. And chapter three is, oh, magic doesn't work. Okay. Well, that's 
shitty. That does, that's <laughs> not what I wanted to read. But um, I, I, I think that I approach it in such a way is that um, I talk in the book a little bit about when you miss the note. And I talk about singers and how even some of the most accomplished singers on the planet, um, sometimes they just can't hit that high note. Like, I love Kesha. I love Kesha a lot. And I gotta say, Kesha's uh, song Past Lives got me through some tough times. I love me some Kesha. Kesha sings a whistle note in the song Praying. She never sung that live. She doesn't sing that live. Why doesn't she sing that live? It's really hard to sing that. It's a really high note. It would hurt. And you know what? If you mess that up live in performance, do you know what tomorrow's conversation is going to be and every conversation for the next three weeks? Kesha, burst the blood vessel trying to hit a high note. You know, look at this embarrassing video of Kesha. So Kesha just sings in her normal register that we're normally used to hearing her sing. And she does it very, very, very well. Yeah. Um, It doesn't mean she can't hit it. It just means that the circumstances need to be right for her to do so safely and, and in a good place. Uh, People that hit whistle notes, um, vocal coaches will tell you, okay, you need to do X, Y, and Z to warm up beforehand. And you need to, you need to, you know, and you can't have sung this much before, or you need to have done this, yada, 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 before you try for that whistle note, because you can really hurt yourself. Like you could really damage your vocal cords if you do it wrong. It's not that you can't do it. It's that the circumstances need to be right. Um, and so I, I sort of use that as a way of talking in the book about the fact that sometimes things fail, not because you didn't do it right, but maybe the circumstances were wrong. Maybe you didn't want it enough. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it was the wrong thing or just sometimes it just doesn't work. Yeah. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. You know, you could bake the same loaf of bread every week for months and then your kitchen's too humid one day and your bread doesn't rise right. And you get crusty Play-Doh instead of bread. (laughs) Right. It doesn't mean that next week you're not going to be able to bake that bread. It just means that this time it didn't work. And that doesn't mean that all of magic falls apart because one spell failed one time. Right. And I think that if we had a little bit more honesty around the fact that sometimes our magic just doesn't work, sometimes the spells that we do just, we don't see results. Maybe that's the better way of saying it. Sometimes I just don't see a result. Um, One, I think people that see content creators and folks online talking about magic, maybe it would make them feel a little bit better. Uh, Yeah. Because, you know, what do we share online? We share, you know, let me wave my incense around this jar and da, 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 da. you know, we share how super incredibly powerful we all are. Why? Because so many of us are selling magic to you yeah. by our books and by our classes and by my herbs and oils and, and spell kits and stuff. Why should you buy it from me? Because I am the most magical witch on the planet. Right. Just look at my my Instagram. (laughs) Yes. Look at my Instagram. I'm a very Instagram witch. And I'm like, you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work. And all those people on there, sometimes their stuff doesn't work either. And that's fine. And that's okay. And it doesn't mean that all of magic falls apart because it didn't work. It just means, you know, that we are on the same planet that everyone else is and that magic has limitations and that not absolutely everything that you can dream of is possible. And 
when you accept that, there's still a lot of room to play. There's still a lot of magic to be found. Yeah. And I love that you talk about that because it is something that's sort of missing. And another thing I'm, I realized as I was reading the book that there are a couple of things that hit me like, oh, I've, I've never seen this addressed before in, in a book, <laughs> uh, books that I've read to give the same disclaimer that, that you gave. Yeah. But another one was spotting a fraud. Um, I mm. loved that section of the book. And I felt like as a beginner, that would have been very useful to me uh, because especially, and I think we touched on this when we talked about rules as well. When you first arrive, you feel like everyone knows more than you and there's all these rules that need to be followed. And especially now in the internet age, everyone seems to be an expert on everything and there's no, um, what's the word? I, I want to say regulation, although it's not, it shouldn't be regulated, but you can say you are whatever, you know, you can, you can say that you're an expert in whatever you can say that you come from whatever line or that you've done whatever magical thing. And that can become a difficult place to navigate for someone who is just beginning because you don't have the tools to know who is telling the truth and who isn't. Um, so I guess my question is, why do you think that's something that we're not talking about more? Or, and why is your book the first book that I've, <laughs> I've seen that well, in? Well, <laughs> it is certainly not the book, first book to talk about fraudulent actors. I think yeah. it's the first. I, I, again, I don't want to say it's the first book ever because I've not read every book ever, Right. but um, it, it would certainly be one of few books specifically aimed at a magical audience that does openly admit that there are people that uh, do not have your best interests in mind, mm -hmm. I think is the most charitable way of saying that. Yeah. And um, I included that for a number of reasons. One, exactly what you said. It's information that I wish I knew in the beginning. Um, and I kind of felt a little angry and a little um, cheated, a little uh, let down, a little taken advantage of when a few years in, you realize that that's the truth. Yeah. Um, not everyone that you meet at a pagan pride event that's setting up their shop to, you know, give you a, a, whatever reading or whatever, not every person online charging, uh, you know, charging for, for whatever service is, has your best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, some of those, some of those folks are not genuine practitioners. They're here to make money and they have found a way to do it. That is really low stakes and easy to replicate for them. Um, you know, and, and really high stakes for you. I mean, you yeah. know, people can lose, people can lose a lot of money, a lot of money. There was a guy, I think in Canada, like a year or two ago that lost his house because somebody had convinced him that the house was like possessed and had taken like all sorts of money from this guy no. and eventually like taken his house. And the thing is like every few years, like every so often we hear these stories of people that lose exorbitant amounts of money. And if it's not money, then it's time. Mm -hmm. Some people um, don't necessarily want to rip you off financially, but they want to rip you off of your time. They want power. They want influence. They want you to think that they, you know, they, that, that kind of like cult leader mentality. Yeah. Again, I just want people to know that those folks are out there. They hide in or around our community, or they at least try to set themselves up to look like they're part of this community. Um, 
And because like what you said, it can be a little difficult at times to check out someone's bona fides to see if they're as legit, you know, as, as they say they are, if they've really spent as much time in the community as they say that they have, or if they've done the work that they say they have or the training or whatever, um, it, it, it can be difficult to, to, um, research that beforehand, right? uh, because we are, we are a decentralized group of people. We don't have any kind of governing body. There's no rule book. There's no anything like that. And so, um, you know, the new practitioner, the person coming here. And I think that's the thing is when you come here, when you come, when you start out on a spiritual journey, you're in a very vulnerable place. Um, you know, you, you are breaking away from what you know, and you're trying something new. And that's a very vulnerable place to be in. If I go to, um, you know, a new city and I've never been there before, I might ask, you know, what's a good restaurant? And I might get a recommendation. And I'm assuming that what you gave me is probably a pretty good restaurant. Right. And that there's probably a reason you didn't give me another recommendation, maybe. Um, every now and then you find out sometimes that a concierge it gets a fee if they recommend a certain restaurant over another. Yeah. And it wasn't that that restaurant was great. It's that the concierge gets money every time they tell you to go there. Yep. And if you had that information beforehand, maybe you would have checked somewhere else for a restaurant recommendation. Maybe you would have looked online um, for a non-sponsored post. Yes. Uh, you know, and that's the kind of thing. And, and like, you know, to, to start getting people, I don't want to make people paranoid and I don't want uh, people to feel afraid. And I, I try and say over and over and over again in the book that like, this isn't, you know, do, if, if ever your path starts to make you feel afraid, if you ever start to fear, feel fearful, stop, stop, mm -hmm. assess, go back, you know, do deep dive research, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So none of this is to make you feel paranoid or to push you away from spiritual growth. It is to make you aware so that you can feel smart, so that you can feel empowered. Um, and so you don't lose your freaking house. <laughs> Yeah. To someone oh who isn't legitimately trying to genuinely provide you a sincerely given spiritual service. You know, there are folks out there who absolutely like Aiden Wachter, you know, a uh, great example, amazing author, amazing practitioner, makes jewelry, brilliant pieces. I mean, the guy has crazy skill and he charges a very good price for his work. Um, you're going to pay hundreds of dollars for an Aiden Walker piece. But the thing is, is a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of handmade jewelry with good quality source gemstones and, and hand cut silver, et cetera, et cetera. And like, he shows you the process and he makes them very small batches and it's, it's good, 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 uh, considered work. And he puts it out there and, uh, you know, as, as, uh, uh, brilliant tools for magic. Um, and and, and I want people to be able to see somebody like that and know that that person is out here providing a genuine, legitimate, like sincerely created and crafted and cultivated like spiritual service. I'm not saying that like anyone that charges you a lot of money is automatically, that's not true right, at all. Yeah. And I say multiple times in the book that if you're, you know, if you're giving your time, your effort, your energy, you deserve to be compensated for that. 
Yeah. Um, it's just that there are other things that you need to consider. Um, and unfortunately, some of those lessons tend to come way too late for some people. They do. And they came for me late, which is why I wish mm -hmm. I would have had, <laughs> I would have had something like that to, to guide me. Um, but sort of shifting gears, I know can that- Can I ask what happened? I know oh. that I'm not interviewing you, but can I interview <laughs> you real quick? Yes. Yes. I mean, I don't want to give any names or anything No, no, like no. That, don't get but, specific. But like, yeah. I think sometimes it's valuable for people to know like, hey, I lost $1,500 on a reader who kept telling me to come back every week because I thought I was possessed or something. Oh, I'm so glad. Is I it think that? In the book, no, I think, <laughs> I think in the book you mentioned the curse DM and I was like, okay, I'm yep. not the only one who's gotten, I didn't fall for the curse DM, but I know that a lot of people have had terrible experiences with the, um, there's a curse on your head, uh, pay me $400 mm -hmm. to remove it or whatever. Um, but I paid for a course that, and it had to do with like magic and spirituality and things like that. And, um, it's not that the information wasn't valuable, but it's not anywhere near what worth, like what I paid for it, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. the price was just like way, way, way over inflated. And by the end of it, I just felt kind of used and sad. And it kind of just made me like it made me question everyone selling spiritual things. And then also it made me question uh, myself as well. And like, you know, because I'm someone who also creates spiritual content, you know, I, I put a lot of stuff on Patreon. I have, you know, like little mini courses and things like that. I mean, of course it's all via Patreon. So it's like, you know, $10 a month. It's not like I'm charging a ton, but it also made me question myself and be like, am I falling into this category where I'm like, tricking people or providing something that's not actually valuable. And it just sends you down this whole wormhole of like, is any of this real? Should I even be in this world? Is this bad? You know? <laughs> and yeah, so it wasn't I think it's terrible. For but... people, I think it's valuable for people to know that, that we have these experiences where we lose time, where we lose um, self-worth. Yeah. Yeah, money can be part of it, but I also wanted people to understand that it can also completely not be part of it. Um, it can it can be an emotional drain. It can be you know a time suck. It can be you were isolated from family and friends. It can be you know a lot of things. Yeah, and um, you know being able to spot that early or at least spot warning signs so that you know, hey this doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. Um, I should probably tell someone about this. And then who knows, maybe someone else could say, listen, we all, you're going to have to carry the water bucket up the hill. I promise. Like Mr. Miyagi knows what he's doing. Yeah. Waxing on and waxing off might seem stupid right now, but there's a reason for it. And you're going to become a karate champion. And <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You know, whatever, like, you know, or maybe your trusted friend says you are in a cult. Let's get you out of there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's about arming people with, um, beginning lessons in discernment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we don't talk about that enough openly and honestly, because of what I said earlier, I don't think that we pick up books on witchcraft to like have some of these types of conversations. We only ever want to talk about the can. We want to talk about the do. We yeah. want to talk about the good stuff. And I think that for a lot of new seekers, polling and statistics tell us um, they want those things. 
but they don't want them to ignore the realities of what they are seeing in the world around them. Right. Um, so that's, that's why those kinds of things are included in the book. And I also, because I realized I didn't answer one of your questions earlier um, about why I talk about media in the book, movies and television and stuff like that, because a lot of that creates um, a sense of expectation, a sense of bias inside of us for what magic should be, um, what we can do with it, what we should do with it. Uh, the kinds of um, cultures, the kinds of uh, information that we can just go grab and cherry pick from uh, because we saw it in a movie or, right. um, you know, I talk about it as well uh, that a lot of what we get from movies and TV might make us think negatively about some group or other. Um, and it's really, really hard to overcome those implicit biases. And it's not to write that down and, and you know scare you off of it. It's so that you're prepared to say, okay, I need to unwrap. I need to really unpack truly what I'm bringing here from media, what I'm bringing here from TV. You know, What have I brought here? What are my expectations because of that? And maybe let's spend some time unpacking that before we dive too deep in here. Right. And I mean, that was my next question because I know, I think on one of your lives, you said that the original name for your book was going to be ethical dabbling. Is that correct? And mm-hmm. I think the chapter is called the ethics of dabbling, but I was wondering if you could, I was going to get down. those, I was going to get those words in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love the name, but I, I can see, I can see why it probably didn't end up being the name, but uh, I would love if you could break down what ethical dabbling means and why it's so important in like the information age where we have access to all this info and maybe some of it is not necessarily for us to be diving all the way in. I think that, um, I say this in the book, but um, I think that we've confused sometimes access with permission. Uh, Marika Clymer, you know, likes to reiterate uh, that, that the word for that is entitlement. <laughs> uh, we have, we, we feel entitled to um, other cultures. We feel entitled to certain information. We feel entitled to people's time. I mentioned this on social media the other day that, you know, um, just because a person puts them out uh, themselves out there as a leader or a teacher uh, or a teacher and a leader um, on social media or in person or something like that, we feel very entitled to their time, to their effort, to their energy. We, we come here with a sense of entitlement. Um, but I think that, again, you know, the modern spiritual seeker is wanting their spiritual path to mirror the lives that they are living already, the yeah. um, the culture around them, the uh, the ongoing evolutionary revolutionary conversations that they're having about race and privilege and economics and class and uh, white privilege and you know all, all sorts of things that we don't like to talk about sometimes in our community because it it might poke some bears that either make some people money or that um, uh, sell books or, <laughs> or simply just make people uncomfortable because, you know, oh gosh, well, I've been using white sage in my practice for 25 years. Does that make me a racist? Right. And it's like, you know, I, I think it's just, it's, let's all pause about slinging labels and uh, around, you know, just because you've done something doesn't mean that, oh, well, now that, now that we have new information or now that we have a new way of considering this information, you know, 
let, let's pause on like blaming and naming and all of that tagging and shaming and all of that. And let's just say, Hey, when we know better, let's do better. Right. When you know better, stop, consider, unpack, and just, just do better. It's yeah. like, it's fine. Let's just do better. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I wanted to spend a lot of time talking about that because, um, you know, I, I, I think too often we, um, our sense of entitlement, our sense of, of access equaling permission um, makes us think that, that we should get to do things that maybe aren't necessarily for us all the time. Uh, your, your previous interview with J. Allen Cross talked about this much, much, much better than I'm sure I could. Um, but, uh, you know, because he, he talked about that sort of intersection of you know, who holds power, who is being centered, who is profiting off of it. And those are arguments that I made that his, the way that he spoke of it was more eloquent than mine. So definitely go listen to that interview. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, those are important points that people need to consider when they start rifling around in the drawers of, of cultures and practices that, that belong to living groups of people. Um, we don't want to think about those because uh, especially with the more intersectional privileges that people have, we think if we find out, oh gosh, you know, this has been harming a certain group or certain people have negative feelings about that, that, oh gosh, well, what does that make me? It makes you somebody who didn't know. Right. And, yeah. you know, nobody's going to be mad at you for not knowing. But now that you do know, and now that you're aware, and now that you, you know, now that other voices are being heard and coming to the forefront and having conversations and letting us know, hey, you know, we we have some feelings about what you guys have been doing with our information and our practice and our heritage and stuff. Um, maybe we need to think a little deeper about why we are including certain practices, uh, why we are, um, syncretizing things or pushing things together uh you know why are we doing some of those things should we continue doing some of those things um maybe so maybe right. maybe maybe we should maybe we shouldn't right and I, I think in the book you refer to it as the gate versus the window is that correct mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, in the book I talk about gates and windows um we talk about gatekeeping a lot uh as though there's there's, there's only gatekeeping. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, 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 there's gates and then there's windows. And, uh, you know, I talk in the book about um, pride parades uh, sort of being a, a window into uh, queer culture, into LGBTQ plus culture. Um, and you can go to a pride parade. You can, you can be a part of the experience. You can sort of experience the breadth. You might be invited in to, um, uh, you know, to be on a float or walk and throw beads out or come to a drag bar or whatever. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily give you permission to center yourself, to make right. it about you and your comfort level and your needs um, and what you want this experience to be. You know, there's some discourse on social media right now about, oh, kink pride and, oh, pride should be family friendly and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, you know what? Let's just let queer people decide what pride should be. How about that? How about, how about pride is a protest anyways? So stop policing the language of protest and just shut up and enjoy your free rainbow cocktail. So right. hush up about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I think that sometimes we don't realize that there's another option other than a gate. You know, we think we need to burst down the gate and go and, and be a part of a community and, you know, make it ours and center ourselves and be a part of it. I'm like, well, there's also a possibility that it's a window and you can view the culture. You, there might even be, you know, windows are large enough. You can pass stuff through a window, you know, I might yeah. be able to get a little bit out of it. Um, but sometimes things are just not for you. And yeah. Sometimes you might have some feelings about the fact that some things aren't for you and it's not about your comfort or your needs or your wants or what you want it to be instead. That's nice. Um, but sometimes uh, a window is simply uh, an opportunity for you to view another culture, for you to view um, a certain practice or something like that, be inspired by it um, in, you know, appreciate it, uh, but realize that maybe it's not yours. You're not going to be a part of it. Um, and that's okay. That yeah. is okay. It should be okay. It shouldn't be seen as a negative. It shouldn't be seen as like, you know, oh, how dare I, you know, how dare you not let me be a part of it? Well, everybody deserves a space. Everybody deserves a space that is theirs. Everyone deserves that. But you just don't necessarily get to go make someone else's space yours just because yeah. you haven't found yours yet. Yeah. And I love that the book addresses that and addresses centering yourself and what that looks like and just overall how critical it is. It's like viewing everything through a very critical eye. Um, and also UPG is something that you talk about a lot, which I want to, I want to ask you a very specific question as a writer, as far as UPG, but something that you talk about is that speaking of poking the bear is that all of our, <laughs> all of our correspondences are sort of based on UPG, unverified personal bias for people, or not personal bias, personal personal gnosis. Um, and I would love to know how, as a writer writing about magic and witchcraft, you were able to keep your UPG out of it. I mean, you do give like sort of tips and things that you like to do, but you don't insert, you know, your entire practice in there and make it like the the theme of the book it's very objective so uh if you could give the listeners kind of a definition of what upg is and then how how did you keep it how did you do that <laughs> <laughs> thank you i'm glad that you see it that way because that was the intention um is again sort of not to give you my answers it's to give you context and different ways of viewing certain kinds of arguments or discussions and then allowing you to go off and use that to discern for yourself what the answer is yeah. um but as far as UPG, uh, unverified or unsubstantiated personal gnosis, uh, different people call have a different uh, word for what U stands for. I've seen it both ways. Um, but unverified personal gnosis is, oh gosh, um, basically having an experience that you can't prove you had uh, objectively, basically. Um, you know, if I go out on... Uh, a summer evening and I see what I believe are fairies in my backyard. Unless I have really good video evidence that I saw those fairies. I don't, I can't prove that I saw fairies in my backyard. Right. And that's literally what UPG is. UPG is used in our community for a lot of very, very good things and a lot of very, very bad things. 
Yeah. And I wanted to let the reader know that both of those things exist at the same time. Uh, UPG is used, you know, I give the very silly example uh, at the very beginning of that section of um, you can believe that unicorns live in your shoes. Uh, but the minute you tell me that how to put my shoes on so that I do not harm the unicorns, that's where we have a problem. Um, you, you know, I also sort of give another example in the book about like somebody bringing oranges to an in bulk, yeah. <laughs> an in bulk uh, gathering and having Brenda, the coven leader, be like, well, Hecate herself told me that oranges were not allowed at in bulk. Right. And it's like, okay, well, let's parse that out. Is that true? Did I just offend a goddess? Did I just really fuck up? Is it possible that Brenda made this up? Is it possible, you know, that there's a, you know, I list a whole bunch of different types of possibilities there. Um, And and I wanna get the reader to understand that everything from correspondences to spiritual traditions, in some form or fashion, typically come down to a combination of one of two things, especially when it comes to correspondences. Um, when it Because you asked me specifically about correspondences, so I'll answer that first. When it comes to correspondences, um, they typically are sourced from one of two things. One is UPG. The other is an actual objective, uh, objectively verifiable um, trait, for lack of a better term. Uh, that is um, associated with that crystal, that plant, that whatever. Um, like I talk about lipidolite in the book because it's one that it's just it's just wild how it's treated in some uh, books about crystal magic. And it's an example of the kind of uh, information in which uh, objective information is severed from the magical correspondence that we see in the book. And so people read sometimes, you know, like you were talking about earlier, okay, rose quartz is for love and amethyst is for, you know, dreams and peace and drunkenness also somehow, yeah. <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, um, the new practitioner typically reads that and just says, okay, this must be true. Yeah. <laughs> this, this must be true. And we don't often ask why, why is it associated with that? What, what gives us that association? Why is that true? Um, is it always true? Is it true in every country? Is it true in every situation? Um, you know, why is green associated with money? Well, because the cash here in the United States is green. Only in the U.S. though, but yeah. (laughs) Right. Like if you go to certain Asian countries, red is associated with prosperity. If you go to some other countries, it might be gold, it might be white, um, black, et cetera. Uh, So, you know, just really breaking down some of the whys behind the what's, but because I talked about it, um, lipidolite in a lot of books about crystals uh, is associated with like alleviating stress. And that's kind of all they say about it. Why is it associated with alleviating stress? Well, because it's the most uh, abundant mineral source for lithium on the planet. (laughs) And lithium is used to make antidepressants. Right. (laughs) So why is lipidolite associated with uh, stress relief? Because it's lithium. (laughs) 
and and maybe people should know that yeah especially before your book tells them to drink it um it's a whole other conversation but um uh the other thing is that there are a lot of practices and a lot of traditions and a lot of um spiritual rules that are based on upg on someone's personal gnosis somewhere um you know why are we sky clad sometimes i don't know gerald gardner was a new nudist so like you you do that math like right yeah did the goddess Aradia, you know, did, did the goddess come down and say that we should be nude in circle or was Gerald Gardner a nudist and was just like, I think I'm going to make up a reason why we should all be naked. Right. But also do people do, but also do people get something out of it? You know, do people get something out of standing naked before the full moon sometimes? Sure. Yes. You know, great. Awesome. If it works for you. Yes. You know, there's a, there's a, there's that gray area where like, okay, well, we know where it came from or we know probably where it came from, but there's still some space where it's like, okay, but it works. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe let's just keep doing it. Yeah. It works. Like, you know, uh, there's a lot of happy accidents sometimes, um, a lot of happy accidents that lead to things that work, but we didn't, you know, uh, the person that made sticky notes, um, set out to make the world's strongest super glue and accidentally made an incredibly weak glue (laughs) that was really, really good at holding a bunch of pieces of paper together temporarily and letting you stick it. Oh, did you not know that? (laughs) Wow. Okay. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The person, the person that made the, the glue that holds sticky, sticky notes together was actually setting out to make the world's like strongest glue and did like and the instead... world's most terrible job. <laughs> like... Yes. But like how often, like how necessary is that void? And like, if you've ever been in an, or just like ever taken a note for someone, like just being able to pull that sticky note out and then like write something on it and then stick it back on a wall. That's great. Yes. That's genius. Yeah. We wouldn't have had that before if somebody hadn't messed up. Right. Like, yeah. There's so many happy accidents that are still worthwhile. So just because it's someone's UPG doesn't mean that there's not value in it, but like, let's not pretend like it wasn't somebody's UPG. Let's, let's have that honest conversation and we can still say, but there's value here. Yeah. It's a sticky note, you know, it's, it's penicillin. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 It might be a moldy orange, but it's still penicillin. You know, there's still, there's still something of value here. So I I think that there's a space for that. So I was wondering if you could explain this idea, which I think listeners are going to be very excited about, of a spell canvas, because that kind of combines the idea of you're you're giving a general idea of what can be done, but you're not saying like, these are the correspondences and these are the ingredients and, you know, this is what this is for. You can form your own UPG and combine that with it. So I was wondering if you could explain the inspiration behind that and what it means. So in true firelight, I am not going to give you the answers fashion. (laughs) (laughs) If I was going to write a spells section, I was like, well, I feel like it would undermine the point of a, the, the, uh, a, a major point of the book, which is, please experiment and please try for yourself and please figure out what works for you. Um, 
if I then turned around and said, okay, here is the love spell. And then here is the prosperity spell. And then here is the weather manipulation spell, et cetera, et cetera. I felt, I just felt like that would undermine it. And also that's not how I use magic. And also that's not really how most of the people that I know personally, at least use magic either. Um, the people that I know that use magic use it with what's on hand. Yeah. They use, they use it creatively. They, you know, if they don't have what's in the book, they find something else. So like none of the, so I called them spell canvases because I said, well, I want to provide a blank canvas for someone that, you know, I basically provide you a spell in reverse. I provide you a ritual to do. And then I give you on the following page, a list of possible ways to use it magically. So one of my very, 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 very favorite spells ever um, came from a science experiment video that I saw like six years years ago on YouTube, um, which was making a flying tea bag. It's the first uh, spell canvas in the book. Um, and it's so easy. It's so simple. It, you just go grab a tea bag, cheap, 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 staple the top tea bag, and you cut it and you turn a little cylinder and you light it on fire and it flies. It literally flies. And I'm like, well, that's fucking magic, man. Like right. it's science because it creates a little vacuum and it pulls it up. And it's like, I get it. Like I get why it works, but like, goodness gracious sakes alive, that feels more magical to me than just like lighting a candle and wishing, wishing real hard. Yeah. So um, there, you know, I said one of the possible uses for it um, is a spell of cleansing. You know, if you want to get rid of something, write it down on the tea bag beforehand, light it on fire, send it into the air. People do this in lots of uh, ways already. People uh, write problems down on a leaf in the wind and send a uh, leaf and, and send it into the wind. They'll release balloons. They will, uh, you know, pour their troubles into an egg or into some other kind of um, object, uh, paper bo boat or something, and put it into a body of water that that flows away from them. There's lots of ways that people already do stuff like this. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, here's a way that you can do it in your house, real quick, real cheap, real easy. But you could also do a lot of other things with this. You could uh, send messages to loved ones. Um, there's a lot of lore and a lot of uh, cultures around basically sort of writing down messages or you, taking objects and burning them to send messages to loved ones on the other side. So here's a way of writing a little bit of a letter um, to someone that you love and send, you know, setting it up in fire. Yeah. There's not a lot of mess to clean up after. And you can do this from pretty much whatever size space you have. You don't need to worry about having a big giant outside bonfire or a fireplace if you don't have one. Here's a way that you could do that. So um, I, what I did was I gathered together, uh, you know, a number of different interesting um, uh, rituals. Some of them were sourced from magic tricks. Some of them were sourced from science experiments. Some of them were just things that, you know, like craft projects that you did as a kid um, that uh, I had just adapted for magical use along the way over the years, just because I was like, well, that, that just feels like magic to me. Right. Um, you know, one of the things is like uh, written in salt was another one. And I was like, you know, take a piece of paper, get your Elmer's glue out and like write something down with glue. And then like, you know, we always use like glitter, but like, what if you just put it at salt? Like, or maybe pepper. glitter because it's pretty. And I was like, <laughs> exactly. But like, you know, 
there is nothing stopping you from this being magic. Yes. There's absolutely nothing stopping you from this being magic. Um, it has all of the correct elements. You've got your salt, you've got a binding agent, you've got, uh, you know, whatever other elements you could glue crystals down. You could glue, you know, you could glue plants down. You could do, but like, I don't tell you, okay, but if you're doing this, these are the crystals that you need to use. Why? Right. Because in the crystals chapter, I went into <laughs> great detail about how, you know, go pick up a fucking piece of gravel and there's your magic rock. There you go. Like, go to a river <laughs> that means something and there's your magic rock. Or sure, go to a rock hound and, and find a really beautiful piece of tourmaline that was sourced or something like that. And there's your magic rock or whatever. But like, I, I just, I want my readers to get out of their head that there are so many rules um, because there aren't as many as you think. There just, there just really aren't. There are mechanics to magic and we go into that somewhat in depth, you know, why magic works sometimes the way that it does or uh, sort of the, the basic, um, uh, you know, functions of magic. What does it typically do? It uh, either, um, uh, you know, propels something forward or impels something to stay uh, or repels something away and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Like we talk about the, the principles of it, but I'm like, but my gosh, if I sit here and then give you 15, 20, 30, 50, here's five love spells, here's 10 weather spells, here's whatever, then my read, I'm doing the same thing to my reader that countless other, you know, authors have done. And it's not that those don't have their place. Mm -hmm. I learned from them as well. And I would still recommend them. And a lot of those books are in my bibliography. Yeah. But I was like, but I just wanted my book to be a different kind of uh, way of looking at magic. Um, be resourceful, think outside the box. What could be magic? Anything could be magic. And the, the people that I respect the most, you know, when I say, you know, I put out on Twitter months and months and months ago, like last year sometime, it was like, you know, what's an interesting magical object that you, or what's an interesting object that you've found a magical use for? Almost no response was the same. Like almost no response was the Sabbath, a whisk, a, a <laughs> sax toy, uh, uh, you know, what I mean, frother for your coffee. Uh, you know, I people do magic with everything. Like once you've been here for a while, it's the action. It's you. You are the magic. Yeah. You are the magic. You, it is you who is the magic. So then why are you letting a book limit you? Right. Why are you letting a book limit your craft? Why are you letting a book limit what magic can be for you? Stop doing that. Stop it. Stop it. Um, you know, if something feels like magic to you, go do that. Go, go, go try it. Go be a magical scientist. Maybe it doesn't work. Yeah. Maybe it fails. Take note of that. Make those notes, you know, keep, keep that journal and figure out what works and what doesn't and when it works and why, you know, why it works for you. What, what were the effects? What did it do? Yeah. You know, uh, how, how does your magic work for you? And some people do all sorts of magic. There's a, um, wonderful author who has an entire book of just water spells and water magic and things like that. Uh, you know, uh, Josephine Winter has a really cool book uh, coming out later this year. I'm, I'm beta reading it or uh, uh, reading the review copy, uh, Fire Magic, where, you know, just an entire book of different ways to use fire. Just like get creative, like yeah, think outside the box, like just, you know, 
stop limiting what magic can be. Sure, there might be rules, and there are certainly rules to traditions, and there might be rules to certain methods of practice. You know, there's a lot of rules in like places like astrology or tarot. You know, a lot of those things have uh, have to do with, um, you know. Uh, some, if you're talking about like astrology, you're talking about angles and perception and, and uh, you know, that kind of thing. And in tarot, there's a lot of numerology and symbology and things that go into the understanding of that. So there are rules there. Um, and it's important to, to know those. Um, but then there's a lot of other space in magic to play. Yeah. And I, I think that's important for people to know. Yeah. I have another selfish question for you. Have you... Have Please. you dabbled? <laughs> have you dabbled into chaos magic at all? Because I feel like I, 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 there's a lot of chaos magic in your book. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody asked, like, somebody just said that the other day that they're like, "Oh, this all you're doing is just chaos magic." It's a um, lot of chaos magic. Yeah. <laughs> is it? I, you know, I, I truly, um, I hadn't considered it being chaos magic before. Honestly, I just, I really took a lot of cues from Cunningham in the nineties. Some of his early, you know, like my first book was Earth, Air, Fire, Water, which- I have that. (laughs) Yeah, which didn't have a lot of like religion in it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously, you know, he wrote Wicca guide for the solitary practitioner. And, you know, he did a lot of, of work to sort of normalize um, solitary practice for, for Wiccans and um, for good or for ill for the next few decades, sort of everything tried to be Wicca for the yeah. a guide for the solitary practitioner. But the lesson that I took out of some of those earliest Cunningham readings, Earth, Air, Fire, Water, Earth, Power, was that I could go out and I could find a rock and I could do spells with this rock. I could go out and get a leaf and I could do spells with this leaf and it didn't necessarily need to be any particular leaf. I could make magic with just about any leaf. Um, the, the spells in his book and the way that he approached magic was just that the world around you is magical mm-hmm. and go make magic with it. Um, I, if, if that's chaos magic, then cool. I had never thought of that being chaos magic. Um, uh, you know, but I, I just, I am of the, the, the mindset that we are magical people living on a space rock spinning around a giant freaking exploding ball of gas in a, yep. in a weird universe. And I don't know, go take advantage of the fact that magic is just part of it. The magic is just part of your birthright of being a, an alive person. So, um, yeah, I, no, I, I, I hadn't considered it being chaos magic before. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm reading, um, I'm doing a series on Patreon where I'm reading Condensed Chaos by Phil Hine. And then, you know, every chapter I'll hop on a mic and just kind of like talk about what came up for me, how I see it. But reading that and your book side by side, I was like, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of parallels. <laughs> like, it's pretty cool. Um, but so you've never cool. read any I mean, Chaos Magic or? No, it's not that. It's just, I just hadn't, I, that, that had never um, personally resonated with me. Uh, yeah. I think maybe there's a little bit more to chaos theory um, than I would personally say is in my particular practice. Right. Uh, but I, I think the reason that the book is written the way that it is, um, is because again, I wanted to give the reader multiple ways of thinking about something and not necessarily provide them any specific answers. I wanted them to feel empowered to um, discern. I wanted them to feel empowered to uh, create for themselves. So if that's chaos, then cool. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what's, what's the one thing that you're most excited about for people to read this book and walk away with? Would it be exactly that? Like what's exciting you about this being out in the world and like people reading it? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I, (gasps) well, right now I'm more nervous than anything because, because like you said, there are some chapters I think that might hit some people, um, you know, make people feel a certain way. You know, we do talk about frauds. We do talk about, uh, implicit bias. We talk about cultural appropriation we talk about, um, homophobia in the community. You know, we talk about a lot of things that, that might feel like tough pills to swallow, but I think for, the right audience for the folks who are coming to this from, from a certain perspective. Um, I think, I hope at least that the reader comes away feeling um, empowered that they can be rational, critical, uh, science appreciating people that do magic. And I think that, I think, you know, I hope at least that the people that come away from reading this book believe that they can be both at the same time and not have to sacrifice um, one for the other ever. Well, I mean, my personal opinion is that it accomplished that because I felt I reading this book, I felt validated. I felt seen. I felt like I wish I had found this in the beginning of my practice and things probably I would have felt more validated and more seen and that would have eased things up for me a bit. I mean, I feel like this is the book I'm, I'm telling you, I've been up late at night Googling things like that, that are, that are addressed in your book. You know what I mean? Like I've, I've been up late at night trying to find something that made me feel seen in that way. And I just, I loved it. So I would love if you could tell our listeners how they can support you, where we can pre-order it, where we can find you, all of that good stuff. So the book is The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft. It comes out September 28th from Simon & Schuster. Um, it is available everywhere books are sold. Uh, a quick link to use would be bit.ly forward slash Dabbler's Guide. Uh, that's with a capital D and a capital G. Um, otherwise, again, no matter where books are sold, if you're using bookshop.org or Amazon or whoever, um, just search Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft. After you, actually, if you just type Dabbler's Guide, uh, it, that, it'll, it'll come up. It'll come up. You can pre-order it wherever books are sold. It's going to be an audiobook. That's cool. <gasps> I found out the other day there's going to be an audio CD. That's cool. How exciting! <laughs> I, I was like, I, well, I want to own the audio CD because I'm like, well, technically, technically, it could win a Grammy, right? Like you win. Yes. Like that's how. Like <laughs> yes. that's how. Like Obama won his Grammy. I was just I'm thinking like, that. I'm like, Obama did it. It's like <laughs> I'm like. I would like to win a Grammy, please. Thank you. So go buy my book so I can win a Grammy. <laughs> yes, go buy the We're book. St- um, other, other than that, I do uh, run a podcast called Inciting a Riot. Uh, you can find it at incitingariot.com. Wherever you download podcasts uh, is Inciting a Riot. I am also on pretty much all forms of social media at Inciting a Riot. So it's real easy to find me. All right. Well, Follow the trail of hot takes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for making the time to be here today, Firelight. It was illuminating and I'm super excited for your book to come out. Well, thank you so much. That's really good to hear. Thanks so much. And you do such a good job, everybody. uh, I really have loved uh, getting to become a fan of yours as well uh, and listen to your show and your perspective. I love the idea of the possibility department. I love the idea that um, I, I love people who are bringing critical 
eyes to uh, to magical conversations and having space for both at the same time. Those are those are those are my people. I love that. So thanks so much for what you do. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Firelight. Linked with this video, if you're on Patreon, or with this audio, if you're on the podcast, is the link to pre-order The Dabbler's Guide to Witchcraft, which comes out September 28th, 2021. You're gonna want to pre-order it. <laughs> so just do it. <laughs> Can you tell I'm excited about this book? Can you tell? Go pre-order it. <laughs> And subscribe to Firelight's podcast, Inciting a Riot. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for supporting the Possibility Department. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the content that I make, please consider leaving me a review or sharing it with a friend. It really, really helps me. And thank you so much for just being on this ride with me. Stay mysterious. <laughs>